This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Hi, podcast listeners. For the next few weeks, we'll be running a survey from our advertising team. We want to make sure the ads on the show match our audience's interest. And we can't do that unless you tell us about yourselves. So please visit sciencemag.org slash podcast survey and click a few boxes for us. I've been through the survey. It's quick, painless, and there's even a chance to win a gift card. So please go to sciencemag.org slash podcast survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. This week's episode is brought to you by Bayer. Bayer creates medicine to treat allergy symptoms, so allergies don't get in the way of a good time. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 18th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, freelance writer Sarah Reardon talks with me about a competition to find the mind, or more precisely, to find the biological basis of consciousness. And I talk with John Protzko about kids these days, this common theme of older generations complaining about younger ones. His team has investigated the psychology behind this millennia-old attitude. Now we have Sarah Reardon. She's a freelance reporter based in Bozeman, Montana. We're going to talk about a consciousness competition. Will pitting different theories of the mind against each other help researchers pin down the physical underpinnings of consciousness? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. I think we should start with this initiative to spend money to find out how consciousness works. Who is doing this? So this is a project funded by the Templeton World Charity Foundation. They are an organization that funds a lot of research into kind of the intersection of science, religion, philosophy. Um, they want to look at sort of the big questions that affect humanity and kind of why the world works the way it does. So consciousness very much falls under that sort of mandate of trying to understand why the world works the way it does, more importantly, why we perceive it working that way, and how people around the world come up with different perceptions of why consciousness exists, why the mind works the way it does. Mm -hmm. 
Well, understanding consciousness has been an interest of humans for a very long time, philosophers and scientists. But why does this Templeton Foundation think this is a pressing issue at this moment? Why put a big amount of money into it right now? We haven't had a whole lot of progress recently in understanding what consciousness is. There's a lot of theories out there about how the brain works, both from a neuroscience perspective and from a philosophy perspective. It's a really, of course, very fundamental question that helps us understand what it means to be human, to be alive. There's a lot of areas where we might be able to make progress in medicine and in biology by understanding consciousness. For instance, there's a lot of efforts to try to communicate with people who are locked in or in a minimally mm-hmm. conscious state. There we have research into AI, for instance, and trying to understand could that become conscious as well as intelligent and what would that distinction look like? What does that even mean? But we can't really answer these questions if we don't really know what we're looking for in the first place. Right. The way this funding is set up, the way this is set up as a competition is really interesting. Can you describe kind of how funding is flowing to different research teams and how these ideas are being set up against each other? Yeah, so Templeton's been working on this for I think about a year and a half now, and they've been bringing together a lot of top researchers across different fields with different theories of consciousness to try and work out if they can have some sort of common ground rules that they can use to test different theories, sort of starting with the same first principles. And the, and the reason for that is that researchers will often publish, oh, here's an experiment that proves my theory, mm-hmm. but other people can say, well, your theory was wrong in the first place, your experiment doesn't really prove anything. And so what they're doing here is they are setting up one experiment where proponents of two different theories have agreed to run this experiment and then look at the data and see whether it supports theory A or theory B better. They've got six labs that are going to be carrying out this first set of experiments, none of which are associated with the researchers who are kind of behind these two theories. So they're going to really be independent of that and be able to look at it in an objective way. Can you tell us what those two competing theories are? There's a lot of different theories out there, and Templeton's interested in testing quite a few of them. The first two that they picked are two of the ones that have the most scientific data behind them so far. One of them is called global workspace theory. And what that idea is, is the brain sort of functions as a computer. It's got inputs and outputs. It gets inputs from the senses. It processes that in sort of like a central processing unit, um, which would be in the frontal cortex of the brain, the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And then it decides, well, is this the input, this thing we're hearing, this thing we're seeing, is that worth being conscious of? And if so, then it tells the rest of the brain what to do with that information. So that's one that is pretty easily tested. So the second theory is called integrated information theory. And with the idea there is a little bit more abstract. We know the brain is highly interconnected. Different sections talk to one another, different neurons talk to one another. And what this theory posits is that this conversation between different neurons and different sections of the brain gives rise to consciousness itself, that that Consciousness is the conversation that is occurring. And the more connected the different parts of the brain are, the more they're talking to one another, the more individual neurons are talking with one another, the more conscious you can be. And you can actually measure the degree to which an organism or a person or whatever is conscious by how connected those sections or neurons are. Okay. And so the way they decided to say, is it A... Or is it B, was by looking at the activity in the brain, right? Yeah, that's right. They're recruiting several hundred people to participate in a couple of experiments. 
they're going to be performing some sort of task like watching some images go by or playing a video game. And then while they're in some sort of brain scanner or a uh, machine that's recording their brain activity, and the researchers are going to figure out what it looks like once you become conscious of some stimulus, something that's happening around you, when you become conscious, what happens in the brain? What does Mm -hmm. that pattern of activity look like? Mm-hmm. And if it looks like one thing, then it might be more similar to uh, integrated information theory. Another pattern might be more similar to global neuronal workspace theory. I'm pretty skeptical of this for a number of reasons. But one is that they're defining down the definition of consciousness to when you pay attention to something, when you're aware of it, brain regions light up. That's where consciousness happens. I mean, it seems like You've defined it so narrowly that you're no longer talking about what most people think about as, of as consciousness. I think that that's kind of part of the problem is that most people don't necessarily think of anything as, as consciousness. <laughs> um, there's so many different competing theories and we just haven't been able to test them in a way that everyone agrees on right. so far. And so it seems like the, one of the goals of this competition slash funding regime is to get people to agree on what they think would be, you know, something that would rule in or rule out a theory. That's the idea in theory. We'll <laughs> see if that actually happens. Um, <laughs> but the scientists involved in this have agreed that if the data looks a certain way that seems to disprove their theory, that they will admit, OK, that piece of data seems to disprove my theory. I'm not sure that they're actually going to turn around and say, okay, I was totally wrong and this guy over here was right. <laughs> I'm going to return um, my grant funding. and <laughs> Yeah, and we got to remember there's a whole bunch of other theories out there in the wings. And so many of these are very malleable and very abstract right. and really hard to define. It's unlikely we're going to come out with one theory that rules them all. Right. What, what are some of the other theories that Templeton is considering funding experiments into? Um, There's a few others out there, one called higher order theory, for instance, which is that there is a part of the brain that acts as sort of a threshold for whether information will come through to be consciousness. There's some others that posit that consciousness is a constant prediction, like you're trying to figure out what's Hmm. going to happen next. Kind of an interesting theory. I'm not sure if that's one of the ones that's on their, their short list or not. And then there's a lot of philosophical theories of consciousness, too, that are it's going to be very, very hard for neuroscientists to set up an empirical way to test. But I know that that's an area that Templeton has been interested in is in other projects is partnering consciousness researchers and philosophers together to try and see if we can marry these two worlds. It sounds like the questions are being sharpened here. But what about the technology that might be required to test these kinds of ideas. Does Templeton and the research involved researchers involved feel like what we have the right ways of looking at the brain in order to judge whether or not consciousness is occurring? Well, who knows? It's, it's kind of a little <laughs> bit like the search for dark matter. Like right. we've got different sorts of detectors that can look for different sorts of things. But if it doesn't exist in that space anyway, then we're not going to find anything. So what, what we've got right now are these six labs where you can be using three different brain imaging methods, which are very well established. EEG, which is like a little cap of electrodes that sits on outside your head. One is fMRI, where you actually can be in a scanner looking at brain activity. And the third is going to be in patients who are in the hospital and have their brains opened because doctors are studying their epilepsy and they're actually going to take the opportunity to put electrodes inside on the brain wow. and measure directly from the brain. All of those are very well established. We know that they do a good job at looking at brain activity, but whether consciousness brain activity is going to show up in the way we predict kind of depends on what consciousness is. And that's 
what we're looking at. Okay, Sarah, I'm going to leave you on that very philosophical note. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks. Sarah Reardon is a freelance reporter based in Bozeman, Montana. You can find a link to her article at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with John Protzko about why there's so much hate for millennials. This week's episode is also sponsored in part by Simon & Schuster, publishers of The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life by prize-winning science and nature writer David Quammen. The Tangled Tree chronicles pioneering scientists Carl Woese, Lynn Margulis, and Satumo Watanabe, whose discoveries in molecular biology, horizontal gene transfer, DNA sequencing, and immunology have dramatically changed our understanding of evolution and the history of life. Listeners of the Science Podcast can visit simonandschuster.com, add the Tangled Tree paperback edition to their shopping cart, and use the discount code SCIENCE at checkout to receive 20% off the book. The offer ends November 15th. The Tangled Tree is available wherever books are sold. This week's episode is also brought to you by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids of all ages to make learning about STEAM fun. This holiday season, a KiwiCo subscription makes the perfect gift for every young explorer, engineer, and artist in your life. KiwiCo is defining the future of play by making it engaging, enriching, and seriously fun. They create hands-on projects and toys designed to expose kids to concepts in STEM, art, and design. Their mission is to help kids build creative confidence and problem-solving skills and have a blast while doing it. There are seven lines to choose from, catering for different age groups and topics like the Panda Crate for babies or the Eureka Crate for kids 14+. Each box comes with all the supplies needed for that month's project, plus detailed kid-friendly instructions. KiwiCo projects are available via flexible monthly subscriptions or for individual purchase. They have gifts for kids of all ages, so there's something for everyone on your list. KiwiCo is offering you the chance to get your first month for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects, visit kiwico.com slash science mag. That's kiwico.com slash science mag. For thousands of years, adults have complained about kids. You know, kids these days. Why aren't they more like we were? Are kids really that different today than they were a generation ago? Are they less respectful, too distracted by computers and phones to read, less smart than we were? John Protzko and Jonathan Schooler published a paper in Science Advances this week that tries to answer this question. They conducted a series of surveys and experiments to figure out why people think about the next generation this way. And John Protzko is here to talk about it. Hi, John. Hi, Sarah. Okay, so we've been going on like this for a really long time. Can you give us some examples of ancient adults denigrating the next generation? If you want the most consistent complaint about kids these days across history, it's one that they don't respect their elders and it's that they don't bring in the firewood anymore. <laughs> you have a thousand years of data to back that up. <laughs> <laughs> Just it, if, if it's to be believed, it turns out that people in, in 400 BC are the last people to ever bring in firewood oh and no, no child ever since was ever bringing in firewood. <laughs> That's so great. How do we ever get firewood in the house? It's like... <laughs> there is a famous quote that you often see attributed to Socrates. Mm-hmm. The counts of the indictments are luxury, bad manners, contempt for authority, disrespect to elders, 
and a love for chatter in place of exercise, which very nicely sums up the basic idea that kids are just the worst <laughs> every, pretty in harsh. every possible way yeah. right, you can think of. Uh, in reality, that was written by a man named John Freeman in his 1907 history dissertation, mm-hmm. which was, in fairness to him, though, a summary of the ancient Greek complaints against children. <laughs> so the oldest recorded complaint, now I say this hesitantly because I have not been able to confirm that this is an actual legitimate complaint against kids these days, supposedly comes from 3800 BC. <laughs> So Yes. And it is supposedly by King Naram Sim of Chaldea. And the complaint goes, we have fallen upon evil times and the world has waxed very old and wicked. Politics are very corrupt. Children are no longer respectful to their parents. And obviously, we've not been degrading so much over time. If kids are always worse than the generations before them, I don't even know. We would just be like a pile of goo on the floor. I mean, aren't kids, in fact, even smarter today in some ways? Like they do better on certain kinds of tests? They certainly score higher on IQ tests, an effect called Flynn effects. And a major component in the debate of Flynn effects is whether those increases are due to actual changes in intelligence or simply scores in a test. We're becoming more familiar with the test items, the test format. It's a very active field of research. Interesting. Um, But they certainly are doing better. Let's focus in on the experiments you did here. And what you wanted to know was why we think kids are worse than adults. Why is the next generation a decline every time? So you ask people, first of all, how they felt about the next generation? Right. It's not necessarily everybody in a society that's doing the complaining about children. I know my my child is brilliant and, you know, (laughs) the best, of course. But everybody else's kids, who knows? Right. All the other kids. Mm -hmm. There tends to be this problem as well when you look at ancient sources, especially where the people doing the writing are literate. And that's a very small segment of the population. And they're generally well-educated, they're very intelligent. We don't hear from historically the poor, illiterate farmers in 1250 and what they thought of children. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we have better abilities to do research on larger swaths of populations. Right. So that was sort of the first thing is, is to what extent do people actually believe that kids are in decline. And then we also wanted to connect it to what people's current standing on a trait was. Some of the things we looked at were the classic kids these days are in decline arguments, like kids these days no longer respect their elders. Kids these days are less intelligent. Kids these days don't like to read. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your sample. This is a really big population of people. And you know where did they all come from? Each study had about 1,500 people drawn to match the demographics of the United States. So you mentioned all these different areas that people might think kids are falling down on, like respect for elders. What were you able to tell about authoritarianism in adults today and what they think about kids? We looked at how people's current standing, how much they currently respect authority, may relate to their belief that kids these days are in decline that they don't respect their elders, they don't respect authority anymore. And if this was sort of an objective decline, then there wouldn't necessarily be a straightforward reason why 
your own standing on the trait could influence the way you you see this. How did those measures line up? If someone had a lot of respect or authority and they answered this question about what they think about kids today, what what would they likely say? Yeah. So the more somebody currently respects authority, the more that they think kids these days don't respect authority or don't respect their elders. Right. And, and did you find similar things for reading, like we talked about with someone who is well-read, how would they feel about kids today? We did. So we, we replicated this with intelligence as well. So more intelligent people think kids are getting dumber and more well-read people think that kids don't like to read anymore. Do you feel like the fact that there's this correlation between the state of the person, the adult that you're asking the question and their opinion about kids today, do you feel like that means that they're probably wrong? <laughs> well, at least with intelligence, we know that that's wrong. We know that at least kids these days are at least scoring higher on IQ tests. They're certainly not dumber. <laughs> we can't say that kids are better read or that kids are less respectful, but we can say that most people's opinions about that are based on their own memories of their childhood. Correct. We cannot say that objectively kids are less respectful and objectively they're less well-read because we don't necessarily have proper rates of these behaviors or these traits historically. Mm -hmm. What we tested was that there is this memory bias. We do know from other research in memory that there's an effect called presentism, where you take your present self and you impose it mm -hmm. into memory. So this is why people tend to think that they've held very similar views on things for a long period of time, even though objectively that might not be the case. So we first found that, yes, people who are high in a trait not just believe that they were always high on this trait, but they believe that when they were a child, kids were high on this trait as well. Because they were a generalized kid. Right. We also don't know, we personally, not as in a scientific community, but an individual doesn't really have any idea how much all children in the United States, for example, like to read. As a science, we don't know that. But as an individual person, we have no, no idea of it whatsoever. Yeah. So what we do is we take our current self and we impose it on the past. And we say, oh, okay, well, that's why if I like to read a lot and I'm well-read, I think kids were well-read. And then when you view sort of a random sampling of children, it naturally appears like they've declined right. because you're comparing them to the sort of idealized memory hmm. that isn't actually factual. There are other ideas about this that you weren't able to refute with your research. There is the possibility that on top of this memory bias that we have, there's also a different kind of bias where people who are well-read tended to have friend groups who were like them and also well-read. And therefore, while part of our memory is biased, we're also partially remembering essentially a biased sample of the past. And that's something that I think longitudinal research will have to work on. Right. Well, what about the setup where you did an intervention where you tested people on their knowledge of authors, so kind of trying to figure out whether they're well-read, and then told them the result. Oh, you're well-read and you're not well-read, and then asked them to talk about kids these days. That's one of the ways that you really put this theory to a strict test. If I currently believe that I'm well-read and I'm imposing that backwards in time and I'm comparing my belief in children to my biased memory, then what we should be able to do is manipulate what you think about your current self mm -hmm. and see if that changes how you feel about the past and how you feel about kids. We gave them false feedback. Either we told them that they were in the upper third of the U.S. population 
or they were in the bottom third of the U.S. population. How did they respond to that information? What happened when they were asked to evaluate kids these days? Not only did they change their views on themselves, oh, I guess I'm not as well-read as I thought I was. <laughs> uh, they also changed their beliefs on the past, and they softened. If you, if you told them that they weren't as well-read as maybe they thought they were, you told people that they were in the bottom third of the population, they think that kids these days aren't as bad as everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to avoid a, like a triple negative. Essentially. <laughs> They're not as, you know, they don't dislike reading uh, as much as if you as if you didn't tell them that, if you told them that they were actually very well read. Yeah. And now we have this mechanism for how this comes about. If you know this about yourself, if you know this about society, can you take this insight and do better and stop saying this about kids? Or is it just always going to happen? I would love for it to be the case that knowledge, that a part of the reason it seems so apparent that kids are in decline is a memory bias, would be enough to maybe get us to stop thinking the worst of children. Every generation. Yeah. I mean, millennials and uh, Generation Z are currently in the firing line. Yeah. But as we age, we will pick on the new generation of kids and their seemingly objective decline. Yeah, I'm not so optimistic from reading sort of historical accounts of complaints and not just you know the ancients, but even things in the 1920s and things in the 1940s, so on and so forth, is whenever we quote unquote see a deficiency in, in kids these days, yeah. we always tend to pick on the bit of technology <laughs> that yeah. we didn't grow up with. Yeah. One thing you're not seeing anymore as much is people complaining about the negative effects of video games yeah. on kids. And that's because a bunch of parents in their 30s and even young 40s grew up with video games. Yeah. And so since we grew up with it, it's not a... You're all brilliant geniuses. So, right. Yeah. But we didn't grow up with smartphones if you're in your 30s. And so, oh, that must that must be the culprit. So then when Gen Z has children, they're going to pick on whatever new technology or whatever, you know, because they grew up with smartphones, but they're going to have something different. We don't complain about the radio, certainly. We How don't about writing? About... <laughs> writing is the worst. Writing and novels. novels. Oh, novels were scandalously bad for you. Yeah. You catch the reading sickness. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John. Thank you, Sarah. John Protzko is a postdoctoral scholar at the Department of Psychology and Brain Sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Just a reminder that this week's episode is brought to you in part by Bayer. Bayer is developing new cardiovascular treatments, advanced brain disease research, and ways to age gracefully. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg for their suggestions and sharp ears. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. 
Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.